Proverbs chapter 2, and we're going to start this morning our examination of a new chapter in the book of Proverbs, which is now, at least recall these first nine chapters, are a series of lectures, the father to the son. By the time we get to chapter 10 and following, we're going to see more individualized Proverbs that are either one, two, in some cases, three or four verses in length. But when, when we are studying these first nine chapters, we're looking at the series of speeches or lectures that the father is giving to the son. This is Solomon speaking to his son Rehoboam, helping prepare Rehoboam to be the next king of Israel. And our focus this morning will be chapter two, verses one to nine, and what I'm labeling the pursuit of of wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom. In other words, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, this is what we have been examining. The first lecture of the father to the son was in chapter 1, verses 8 to 19, wherein he describes the associations of wisdom. In other words, we, we must, to be wise, associate with the wise. We must be careful to avoid uh, evil companions. And so he talks through that. Last time we were in verses 20 to 32 of chapter 1, which is the introduction of Lady Wisdom. And we will see those two characters uh, again in chapters 8 and 9, particularly chapter 9. But we have the two paths of life represented by Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. Well, Lady Wisdom was introduced to us last time where she gives a warning. She first, you know, she gives the invitation that, hey, she, she will bless and, and teach wisdom to all who come to her and respond appropriately. But if we spurn her, if we reject wisdom, then she warns us of the coming consequences to that life choice. And so today, we're going to pick it up kind of on the, on the heels of that last uh, lecture, and we're going to see the pursuit of wisdom. Now, again, in context, again, just notice kind of the, the flow of thought from lecture to lecture to lecture. But in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 to 19, that was cast in the form of a parent's exhortation, right? That's the father speaking to the son, saying, hey, be careful who your friends are. Well, then chapter 1, verses 20 to 33, actually, not 32, last, sorry, slide was a typo, 33, was cast in the form of a prophet's warning. It's, it's lady wisdom in a, with a very prophetic warning that, hey, if you reject me, this is what's going to happen. It's a warning in a prophetic future-oriented sort of, of description. Well, now, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, is going to take the form of promises. There's, there's, but they're promises without imperatives. It's not commanding us to do something, but then again it is, because the promises are conditional, that we will receive blessing, learn to fear God and be wise, if we do X, Y, Z. In other words, it gives us the path on how to pursue wisdom. In other words, chapter one has attempted, and we'll see this several more times in the, in the chapters subsequent, but chapter one has really attempted to try and motivate us and help us see the importance of wisdom, becoming wise. But now he's giving us the path to wisdom. How do we pursue wisdom? How do we become wise? Well, chapter two, verses one to nine is gonna help us with that. Uh, so, in other words, in the words of Charles Bridges, and I will be quoting him a lot uh, in, in the you know, weeks and months to come, he wrote a classic commentary on the book of Proverbs that's well over 100 years old, and uh, he's, he's, uh, he's got a lot of wisdom when it comes to studying the book of Proverbs. But he says this, he says, Wisdom, having solemnly warned rebellious scoffers, that was chapter 1, now instructs her obedient children. That's chapter 2. All right, in other words, the tone 
The, the, the main thrust is the same. Be wise, pursue wisdom. But the tone shifts. Chapter 1 was a warning of rebellious scoffers. But now chapter 2 is an instruction to obedient children. All right, so here's our thought flow, and then we'll read the passage. We're going to see verses 1 to 4 is the reception of wisdom. This is how we receive wisdom. This is how we pursue wisdom or become wise. And then we'll see verses 5 through 9 is the reward of wisdom, that if we receive wisdom and become wise, then here is the reward or the result of wisdom. All right, so really simple thought flow, but you got your Bible. Let's read the section. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. Let's go down to verse 9. It says this. My son, if you will receive my words and hide my commandments with you so that you incline your ear into wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yea, if you cry after knowledge and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hid treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Notice all the, the if in verse 1. If you do, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, then the result is you will understand the fear of the Lord. You will find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. He's the source of all wisdom. Verse Continuing verse 6, out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He lays up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler or a shield to them that walk uprightly. He keeps the paths of judgment and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and judgment and equity. Yea, every good path. Now, that theme is, of course, going to be, uh, and we probably won't get that far today. Next time, we'll, we'll pick it up in verse 10 and following, where the rest of the chapter is going to kind of flesh that out. But the, the, when we understand, as he ends in verse 9, righteousness, judgment, equity, and every good path, it's going to keep us out of the path of the wicked man and the wicked woman. And so that's what we'll see at the end of uh, the chapter. But our focus today, verses uh, 1 through 9 of chapter 2 is all about how to pursue wisdom, to receive wisdom, and, and then, of course, receive the rewards for wisdom. Now, again, the, as one commentator points out, the verbs are, there's a lot of verbs in this, those first few verses. This, this first four verses about receiving wisdom. The verbs receive, treasure, incline, cry out, and search. All the, just rapid-paced verbs they're more than just parallelism in Hebrew poetry. Rather, they, they underline the involvement and effort needed both to obtain and retain wisdom. This is important for us to recognize. Look again at verse 1. He says, My son, if you will receive my words and hide my commandments with you. He begins with this idea of receiving the words of wisdom and hiding the commandments uh, you know, in our hearts. And this concept, of course, pervades the scripture, the idea of willingly receiving something. Jesus put it this way in his parable of the seed and the soils. You remember this? He talks about the good ground that receives the word of God with joy, and then it springs up and bears forth fruit. He references that, for instance, in Luke chapter 8 and verse 15. This idea of willingly receive, but also diligently retain not just listen and, and learn the posture of a humble listener, but we also need to treasure up, or as it says here, to hide our, the God's commandments in our heart. Some translations will use the word treasure up God's word. That's the idea of hide it. Not in the sense of conceal it from view so that you know, we are pretend chameleon Christians. That's not what's going on there. right? We're like, well, I believe God, but I don't want anyone to know about it. 
No, no, no. The word has the idea of treasuring it up, holding it close, tucking it away because it's valuable. That's the idea. Notice how this parallels. We'll get to it later, but in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20 to 23, he elaborates on the same idea when he says, My son, keep your father's commandment. Forsake not the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you go, it will lead you. When you sleep, it will keep you. When you walk, or excuse me, when you awake, it will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. In other words, the idea of, of hide it, hide my commandments, is the idea of treasuring them up, recognizing their value and treating them accordingly. Which practically applied to you and I today, again, Charles Bridges points out, that this, this is helpful for us to understand even when we come to reading the scriptures, whether it's publicly in a public setting or privately in our, in our own daily devotional life, whichever setting, to read God's book like the person who sat at Jesus' feet and listened to him speaking, like in Luke chapter 10. That's what we must do, is to read the scriptures with that sort of open heart and mind, ready to hear what God is saying. We need to be, another example, Acts 17, 11, be like the Bereans who were so keen to examine the scriptures. That's the idea of those, those twin verbs, receive my words, hide my commandments with you. In other words, perk up your ears, listen carefully when God speaks. That's, again, step one, if you will, milepost number one on the way to wisdom is to willingly receive and diligently retain the word of God. But he he goes on in verse two and he gives us a second step. It's not only to willingly receive the words and treasure them up in our heart, view them as valuable, but he goes on verse two, he says, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. In other words, notice the so. It's verse one, if properly done, will lead to verse two. If we properly receive God's word, if we have an attitude of gratitude toward God, a reverence for the scriptures, that when it's open, our mouth is shut, our ears are open, we're listening to what God says and we're treating it as valuable, then that will lead to properly applying the word of God. He says you are to incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. In other words, it's, it's not enough to simply hear God's word passively, but to do it actively, to incline the ear, to, intent, to listen with the intent to obey. That's the concept. So to properly apply the word, we must listen with this intent to obey, to be humble and to be teachable. I, I often like to connect this with Matthew chapter 13, which I'll just explain briefly. Do you remember in Matthew 13, Jesus begins teaching, and he's about halfway through his ministry, by the way, uh, a little over, and it says he then begins teaching in parables. And the disciples are, are thrown by this, and they say, why are you teaching in parables? And Jesus gives a rather profound answer. He says, I'm teaching in parables for really, it's a twofold purpose. It's a double-edged sword. He says, on the one hand, it's going to provide insight to the humble, but it's going to blind the proud. In other words, he says, those who are ready and willing, or as Jesus puts it, those who have ears, let them hear, right? That's simply Jesus's repetition of this idea. Let those who have ears, let them hear. Listen. 
He says, if you have the posture of a humble listener, then the reality is you can now learn God's word. You can apply it. But he says, those who are already hardened in their heart that don't intend on you know, listening to obey, then the parable is going to make no sense to them. And it's going to further them in their blindness. That's an interesting concept. But Matthew 13, if you want to check that out. In other words, the, what the father's trying to teach the son is that the son must be an attentive listener, not a compulsive talker. Right? This is, again, we talk about it often, but this is a huge theme in the book of Proverbs. And, and it's, it's often rephrased in the words of Seneca uh, that, I, that has been passed on down through the ages. My parents gave it to me, but, right, we have one mouth and two ears. Right? So we're to listen more than we talk. That's the idea. And so, it, but again, I think it's interesting that the whole posture he's trying to teach here is one of an, a humble, attentive listener, which is, again, ironic in that much of modern counseling takes the opposite approach of talking about your problems rather than learning the posture of a humble listener. Now, that's an interesting thought because I think there's, there's nothing wrong with talking through your issue because oftentimes it helps you summarize and, and get out what's on the inside. But if all you do is talk and you never stop to listen, then the point is you're never going to learn. Does that make sense? Whereas much of modern, again, this, this, let me just put a little bow on this, then we'll move on. But much of modern, uh, you know, secular counseling comes from the perspective of the enlightenment and romanticism and all that. But it's this human, it's based upon a human philosophy that you have the truth inside of you. That if you just still your mind and quiet your heart or talk it out enough, that eventually you will arrive to the right conclusion because you're smart enough. It's all, you're, you got this. But the Bible has a totally different posture. The Bible says we're darkened in our sin. We're ignorant before God. We're alienated from God. And we actually have to have an outside source input truth into us that we're not going to find the truth on our own. We have to have someone, i.e. God, reveal truth to us. Does that make sense? So the biblical path to wisdom is not looking internally. And, and doing the whole Descartes thing, right? I think, therefore I am, I think, right? <laughs> right? And just kind of look within and arrive to the right. No, 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 no. Bible says we on our own are darkened and ignorant. We must have truth spoken into our lives from God. And so we must learn the posture of a humble listener. So he says, Receive my words, hide my commandments in you, within you. Incline your ear to wisdom, apply your heart to understanding. Verse three, yea, if you cry after knowledge and lift up your voice for understanding. Verse three is talking about essentially prayer, crying out, asking for help. This implies an attitude and understanding of neediness. Like I just said, we don't have the answers in and of ourselves. We must have the posture of a humble listener. We, this idea of crying out implies not only neediness, but even what you might call desperation and a recognition that wisdom comes from a source outside myself. James chapter 1, verses 1 to 6 tells us that if any man lacks wisdom, let him think really hard and come up with the answer on your own. No. It says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally, right? And upbraids not. The idea is that God is the source of wisdom. And this is really important for us. Again, 
This, uh, again, Charles Bridges puts it so beautifully when he says, we search for no other inspiration than divine grace to make God's word clear. In other words, when I'm reading the scripture, when I'm coming to God asking for wisdom, then I must, in order to have that posture of a humble listener, I need to cry out in prayer, ask God for help, ask him to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Uh, We camped on this idea a couple of weeks back in our Ephesians series, right? Because this is what uh, Paul is praying for. He pauses, right? He teaches and then he pauses and he prays at the end of Ephesians chapter one because the eyes of our heart and our mind need to be enlightened by God. God must turn on the lights to help us understand. Now, this idea of crying out for wisdom is where we see examples of this in the scripture. For instance, again, this is Solomon writing, but his father, David, and then Solomon himself both exemplified this idea, this ideal. For instance, in Psalm 119, verse 18, David is most likely the author there. Uh, it is you know, debated to a degree, but I think he is probably the author. David is the one who is saying, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. It's a prayer to God. And David is asking God to open his eyes so that he might understand the scripture. Solomon, and again, we've talked about this just even a few weeks back in our introduction to the book of Proverbs, but I think Solomon had enough wisdom to ask for wisdom because that was a, it was answer to David's prayer. If you read Psalm 72, David prayed for God to give wisdom to his son Solomon. And when God shows up to Solomon in a dream, 1 Kings chapter 3 records this, and he gives him the closest thing the Bible comes to, you know, a, a blank check. And he says, hey, God says to Solomon, what do you want? I'll give it to you. Solomon has enough wisdom to ask for wisdom. And he, in that prayer for wisdom, God gives him supernatural wisdom. So again, he's, he's already lived that out. By the time he's writing Proverbs chapter two, he's trying to pass that on to his son and say, listen, we have to pray, cry out for wisdom and knowledge. In other words, these aspects of conviction, illumination, and application of the word of God into our lives comes from the supernatural result of my prayers. Or to put it another way, my wisdom is in direct proportion to my prayers. That's a powerful thought, right? This is Proverbs 2, James chapter 1, all of these passages we're talking about, this is at the heart of it. This is the core of it. Is Our wisdom is in direct proportion to my prayers. And every time I read that, I don't know about you, but man, it just hits me and I stop and I pray (laughs) because I want to be a wise person. And every time I consider this concept that, man, my wisdom is in direct proportion to my prayers, then I'm rebuked by the fact that I do not pray enough. So stop and pray. God, help us become wise. But verse four is going to take it the next step. Not only are we to receive God's word, hide its commandments within us, treasure it up, verse one, to also incline our ear and apply our heart to understanding, verse two, but also to cry out after knowledge, lift up our voice for understanding, verse three. But then also finally, verse four, he says, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hid treasures. Again, Charles Bridges is helpful when he says, yet prayer must not be a substitute for diligent service. Rather, let it be a spur for it. In other words, I just ended with this observation that our wisdom is in direct proportion to our prayer. However, I also made this observation in the book of uh, Ephesians. Remember this? Paul spends like, what, like 12 verses or so? 10 verses, something like that, praying for wisdom for his readers. 
But then what does he do very, the very next chapter? Chapter 2, verses 1 and following. He starts instructing them. In other words, I like to say he doesn't pray for a hole while leaning on the shovel. You know? He prays and then he gets to work. He does both. Well, that's what is going on here. The Proverbs are telling us, pray for wisdom. Then pursue it. Search for it as for hid treasures. So again, as, as Charles Bridges points out, prayer is not a substitute for diligent service. Rather, it's what spurs us on towards it. It lights the fire. It fans the flame to get us active in searching for wisdom. This idea of searching for wisdom or seeking her as silver is important. The idea is, the, the, the connection there, seek for it as silver, has the idea of searching with priority. Prioritize this search. The concept is that a treasure hunter searches without thought of cost, only thought of reward. The author of Hebrews says this same thing in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's the concept, is that we, that's what faith is, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God, it says in, in, in Hebrews. But those who come to God must believe that he is, that he exists. But number two, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And the concept is that we are like a treasure hunter and we're looking for the reward. So we're pursuing that without thought of cost. We're only keeping our eye focused upon the reward to come. So again, when applying this to our own life and how we read the scripture, uh, this, this is a really important attitude when it comes to the Bible. Again, James chapter 1 is huge about this. Um, you've heard this said, perhaps, I've said it before, I think Pastor Daniel has said it before in his teaching through the book of James. But the book of James is sometimes called the New Testament ver version of Proverbs. He's, he's very proverbial. The way he says things, a lot of what he's leaning upon comes from the book of Proverbs. And we see, again, this same theme showing up in James chapter 1 when it says that we are to lay aside, when we come to receive the word of God with meekness. He says, you confess your sin, you lay aside your sin. You are then put, you put yourself in the posture of a humble listener. You receive with meekness the engrafted word, James chapter 1 tells us, that it may be able to save your souls. As Bridges puts it again, to read instead of searching the scriptures is just to skim the surface and collect a few superficial ideas. In other words, when I come to read the Bible, whether it's in a, in a public setting like this and where we read it publicly and then we talk through it and I teach through it, or whether you sit down privately and you read carefully, we have to come with that idea of an investigator, a researcher, uh, uh, someone searching for hidden treasure. The idea is that it's the attitude of anticipation, that God is going to teach me something. This is why I find it helpful. Not everybody does this, but I find it very helpful to read the Bible with a pen in hand. You know what I'm saying? To write either, I like wide margin Bible where I can write in my Bible or maybe a notebook next to it, or maybe you're a typing person and you want to do it on you know, a computer or something. But the idea is that you're you're the posture of anticipation and expectation. I'm going to learn something. And I'm, I'm underlining. I'm circling. I'm writing what I'm thinking, what I'm observing, questions I have, what, what I don't understand yet, etc. Because if the process is that I'm not just skimming the surface. I'm not sitting down, hitting the timer, saying, okay, I have two minutes. Boop, 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 boop. Okay, I'm done. Read my chapter for today. Close the Bible, put it on the shelf. 
you probably got nothing out of that. Or you know what I'm saying? Uh, and, and, it's, and, it, and the good test for that is get to the end of the day or the next day. And someone say, hey, what did you read today? What did you learn from your Bible? And you're like, uh, no idea. Right? Well, that's skimming the surface versus an active sort of study. So again, we, this, this idea of, of searching the scriptures is an important aspect. And again, just to kind of summarize this attitude, what we need is the same kind of drive that men have, right? Here we are in a mining industry sort of uh, environment. But what we need is the same kind of drive that men have in mining for silver or searching for hidden treasures. That's the sort of motive that we need. It's like, hey, there's, yeah, there's cost to this. There's a little effort involved. There's time involved. But the reward far outweighs, you know, any sort of cost. But the tragedy is that too often men show more zeal in acquiring material wealth than spiritual riches. We'll work like a dog for a paycheck, but then we won't give an ounce of time to gain wisdom. And that betrays our real priorities. And that's, what's, that's what he's getting at, is we need to search for it as for hidden treasures, as for silver. That's the idea. But our text goes on. If this is what we do, if this is our path to wisdom, verses 1 to 4, that's how we receive wisdom, then what's the reward for wisdom? Well, verse 9, or verse 5, rather, 2 in verse 9, is this next section. It shows us the reward of wisdom, the benefit for putting in this effort. Verse 5 makes it crystal clear. Let's reread it. He says, then, notice the if was back in verse 1. If you do, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, then, here's now the result. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Those who are anxious to come into a right relationship with the Lord are really, uh, and to really know God, are never disappointed. That's why one of the early church fathers said that the man who seeks God has already found him. I like that. The man who seeks God has already found him. In other words, God's not playing hard to get. It's us who are so often reluctant to actually search to put any effort into pursuing our relationship with God, to gain wisdom. But he says, the promise, if you do, verse 1 through 4, then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Why? Well, because, verse 6 and following, the Lord is the source, supplier, and protector of wisdom. We've already referenced James chapter 1 several times. We could add to that 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 6 to 14, we talked about that passage a couple of weeks back in our study of Ephesians. But the idea is, again, that God grants supernatural wisdom to those who have the Spirit of God, who search for wisdom, who cry out, all of these things. I think this is interesting contrast to Genesis chapter 3. Remember the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden? They were tempted by that fruit that it was worthy, capable of making one wise right? There's the great irony. Is, is Satan got them to believe the lie that wisdom is found outside of God. That maybe it's all those people in the ivory towers with PhDs. Maybe that's where all the wisdom is. Or maybe wisdom is internal. And like I said, we just sit there and we think hard enough and we're going to come up with the right answer. That is a lie. That's, it goes right back to Satan's original lie in the Garden of Eden. The lie that we will get what we need outside of God. That we can do it on our own. We can be our own individual. 
Autonomy from God is the answer. That's a satanic lie that leads to destruction. Rather, wisdom is found in God. Because if you approach God's words, God's commandments with this humble posture of a listener, he says, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Why? Because, verse 6, the Lord is the one who gives wisdom. Wisdom is sourced in him. And so if we come to him for, our, for wisdom, come to him as the source, then he is ready and willing to give. Out of his mouth, verse 6, comes knowledge and understanding. He lays up sound wisdom for the righteous. He's a buckler to them that walk uprightly. I love that he lays up wisdom. It's similar. It's uh, phraseology to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which you have there in your notes. But the idea is that God has, has set it aside. He has especially prepared wisdom. It's like he's prepackaged it. He's made it easily accessible if only we come to him as the source. He's laid it aside. He's laid it up. He's stored it up for us. And the reality is God's wisdom is infinite, immediate, and infallible. Uh, a little while back, I did a little, uh, in fact, I was at this Christian school, I think, uh, speaking for chapel. And we were talking about the wisdom of God, and I used that little outline. God's wisdom is infinite, immediate, and infallible. And, you know, we could just spend a lot more time, the rest of our time, on just developing that idea but God's wisdom is infinite. It means it's without bounds, without measure. That God's wisdom cannot be measured. It's infinite. But it's also immediate. The idea is that it, it, it has, he has total, immediate, you, you know, I, I want to use the word recall, but then it makes you kind of wonder if that even really applies to God. <laughs> right? Because you and I, when we have to try and remember something, we got to put our thinking cap on, Right? We stroke our beard, maybe just a little bit. <laughs> and we're sitting there like, wait a minute, I'm trying to re remember. I'm, it's recall, ah, you know. And even when we're, and this drives us nuts, even in, in the information age in which we live, we try to, you know, push up a couple buttons and get an answer. Think. And then we sit there and wait and we watch that, you know, little thing spin. It's loading, right? And you're just like, oh, you know, it's driving you crazy. And, but the idea is it's God's knowledge Wisdom is infinite. It has no boundaries, has no limitation. It's immediate. It God, and God didn't go through stages like you and I do. Again, when I was at the Christian school, I was talking about, hey, you went from you know, your first grade to your second grade and your third grade, and then maybe you are soon to graduate high school, and then maybe you'll go on to college, and then maybe you'll go after a master's or a, you know, a doctorate after that. In other words, there's all these stages of learning. God doesn't have that. His knowledge is infinite, it's immediate, and it's infallible. He cannot make a mistake. He is incapable of miscalculation. That's a powerful idea. So the point is, why wouldn't we go to God for wisdom? Because his wisdom is infinite, immediate, and infallible. It's perfect. He's the source of all wisdom. But his wisdom is also on display. He has showed us wisdom in a variety of different ways. Obviously, we're talking about the word of God receiving his words, treasuring up his commandments within us. But wisdom is also seen or on display through God's greatest acts, his deeds of creation and redemption. And we don't have the time to go through all these passages, but Job 9, Job 37, 38, Psalm 19, Psalm 104, later in Proverbs 8, we're going to talk about this more. Isaiah 40, Jeremiah 10 are just examples where the authors of those portions of the scripture are looking at creation and they say, wow, look at the wisdom of God. Look at how complex, how beautiful this is. God is wise. 
Also, this is a big theme. Uh, we talked about it briefly, but we're going to spend much more time about it, uh, talking about it in Ephesians chapter 3. But this is a big theme in the book of Ephesians, that God's wisdom is not merely on display in creation, but in redemption. Look at what God did to redeem fallen humanity. Look what God is doing through the impartation of the Spirit of God, the illuminating work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God and the heart of the believer, the church of God, and what God is doing in and through the church for His glory. And all of this, Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11 says, is to display the manifold wisdom of God. God's wisdom is on display in redemption. And that's a loaded concept that we'll spend, again, much of our time in Ephesians unpacking that idea But the idea is that God's wisdom is not only infinite, immediate, and infallible, but it's available. That's what this proverb is telling us. God requires of the recipients not intellectual ability, but moral attitudes of uprightness, blamelessness, justice, and faithfulness. That's what he says. God is the source, verse 6. He gives wisdom. Out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He lays up or treasures up, wraps up, sets it aside, prepares it for the righteous, verse 7. He's a buckler or a shield to them who walk uprightly. He keeps the paths of judgment and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and judgment and equity, yea, every good path. Notice, to gain wisdom, he doesn't say you have to have a really, really high IQ. Because for some of us, that's just not going to work, you know what I'm saying? And we're like, oh man, if, if if it's dependent upon our intellect, we're in trouble. But it's not dependent upon our intellect. That's not what this is saying. It says, rather, true wisdom, God-given spiritual wisdom, he says, is laid up, verse 7, for the righteous, for those who, verse 7, walk uprightly. In other words, it's the humble posture of a listener who's ready to learn and to obey what God says, to search the scriptures, to recognize that wisdom comes from a source outside of ourself. And I, I listen with the intent to obey. That's all that God is looking for, and he pours out wisdom. And I think this is interesting, this idea that he, he pours it out upon the upright or the righteous. I think we also see this in the New Testament text. First John chapter 1, verse 7 describes that we have fellowship with God when we walk in the light, as he is in the light. Then we have fellowship one with another. In other words, there's an interesting principle here that God is light, according to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. So for us to become wise, we have to come to the light. In other words, for me to become wise, I've got to go to God. I have to come to him. I have to have the posture of a humble listener that is willing to listen and do what God says. But if I retain my stubbornness, my pride, my you know, intellectual haughtiness, and I say, well, I, I, got, I can figure this out. I got this. Or I'm holding on to my sin. I'm staying in the darkness rather than confessing my faults and coming to God for forgiveness. Then I will never become wise if I remain in the darkness. God's not going to come to the darkness. He's inviting us to the light. Now, again, this invitation is open to all. Recall, this is what we talked about last time. Lady Wisdom. Back in chapter 1, verse 21, wisdom is crying out in the open and public place. She's broadcasting her invitation, crying out in the marketplace. We also talked last week about Job 28, how wisdom is not uh, a hidden treasure to be dug up from the depths. In other words, we don't go down deep and mine it out of the earth, nor is it the sole possession of a lonely sage upon a mountain, right? We don't have to go to the mountains of Tibet 
and go on this, this journey to find enlightenment. Rather, wisdom is available for all who are willing to listen to Yahweh. That's the idea. That's what the book of Proverbs is telling us. But he says that if you do all of these things, then, verse 5, you will understand the fear of the Lord, find the knowledge of God. Now, I know we talked about, we, we spent a whole session a couple weeks ago on chapter 1, Proverbs 1, 7, and we defined, we attempt to examine Scripture and give a definition to the fear of the Lord. But let's, let's I, want, I want to take that step, you know, that thought a step further and ask the question whether or not you know that you fear God. In other words, how can you know you fear God? And how do we, again, here's how we pursue wisdom, verses 1 through 4. If we do, we become wise, verse 5. But how do you know that you're wise, that you fear God? One helpful test, it's a litmus test, if you will, is found in Job chapters 1 and 2. And this test that's available is simply to ask the question, how do you react when God takes things from you? We could actually even add that, you know, add to that the, the other half of the question, which, uh, you know, we'll get to it in Proverbs, later Proverbs chapter 13 talks about this. The idea of a hope deferred makes the heart sick. And the idea is that when, how do we react when God either takes something away that I loved or he doesn't give me something that I want? Either of those things. It's really the same issue at play but we tend to think of those two things differently. Well, I had this and I lost it. Like a great job or a great you know, house, career. So, you know, maybe it was, it was a, we lost a loved one. Whatever it was, we suffered loss. How do we respond to that? Or there's something I'm pursuing, something I want, but I can't get it. How do I respond to that? To take it again, just to ask the question, how do we react to financial loss, the death of a family member, the loss of health? When Job suffered these things, he worshiped God, the text tells us. Why? It says because he feared God. In chapter 2, Job says this. He could honestly declare, Naked came out of my, I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? He says, I had a lot, and now I have a little. God's good. And he trusts the Lord. He fears and reveres God. That's how we test whether or not we're genuinely fearing God. Now, if you know the rest of the story, then you know that even Job, in his godliness, could still grow in his God-awareness. Job, chapters 38 to 40, is one of the longest speeches of God anywhere in the Bible. The pace of God's questions is relentless. It really, and I think that's the whole point, is God is trying to take Job's breath away to really humble him all the more. When God appears in chapter 38 of the book of Job in a whirlwind, he then peppers Job with a whirlwind of questions, one right after the other. Yet the result is, as Ed Welch puts it, if you have been through a hurricane, a spring rain is nothing to fear. If you've been in the presence of the Almighty God, everything that once controlled you suddenly has less power. It's an interesting observation. And that was the whole point. Job needed to gain greater perspective. To rephrase what Ed Welch is trying to say, when I learn to fear God, then I fear nothing else. 
On the other hand, if I fear everything else, it evidences that I do not genuinely or very deeply fear God. That's how we test whether or not we genuinely fear God. If we're really wise. But if we're not, and we, none of us are ultimately what we could be. So, how do we pursue this? Again, verses 1 to 4. Let me parallel this, however, with another passage. If you've got your Bible, just keep your finger there, but go backwards to Deuteronomy 17. I want to read this. You're familiar with it, perhaps, but I love to parallel this. Go to Deuteronomy 17, verse 18 and 19. Deuteronomy 17 is recording the law for kings. Do you remember this? How the kings were to respond in ancient Israel, how they were to live by God's standards. And he gives them a number of things that they weren't supposed to do, right? The ideal king, not to uh, lay up the uh, riches and you know, lean heavily upon chariots and all of the military hardware of the day. And you know, there's a number of things that are he's supposed to stay away from. Why? Well, verse 17 says that his heart turned not away. That in other words, we are so often so full of distractions that we begin to trust things like our economy, our military, our diplomacy. And we think that that's the source of a nation's strength. And God says to Israel's kings, don't do that. Don't fall prey to that lie. But rather, verse 18, he says this, it shall be when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. That, I'm going to go and read verse 20, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. I love to pause there and just trace this through the books of 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. Read the history of the kings sometime. If you're rusty on it, go reread it. And notice how many times it uses this exact phrase, that such and such a king lifted up his heart, or his heart was lifted up, or something you know, similar to that phrase. The idea is that he became proud, he became arrogant. Typically, it's after success. I always think of Isaiah. One of my you know, heroes, the first half of his reign was, man, godly king. God was blessing. He blessed him economically, militarily, diplomatically. Israel or Judah at the time, Judah was in a solid place on the international scene because of the godly leadership of Uzziah. And then it says, but then his heart was lifted up. He got arrogant. He got proud in all of his success. So that's when he tries to go into the temple of the Lord. Remember this? And the priest said, no, no, no. You're a king, not a priest. Get out of here. And the king says, I can do whatever I want. Right? So God strikes him with leprosy in front of everybody. And he flees out of the temple. And he lives the remainder of his days sequestered in, a, in the palace, unable to go out because he's a leper. Ouch. I think of Uzziah, and I read this passage, and I say, look, this is exactly what God warned him. Don't lean upon your economy, your military, your diplomacy. Rather, look to God for wisdom. 
write out a copy of the book of the law. He says, and then you read that law every single day. And if you do this, he says, you will learn to fear God and you will keep God's words. But if you don't do this, your heart will be lifted up above your brethren. In other words, it tells us, it's, it, it casts it in the form of inevitability that if I stay away from my Bible, I will become proud and arrogant. It's human nature. I can't escape it. It's inevitable. But the repellent to pride and arrogance is to get into the Scripture. And as he says here, the king needs to do it every single day. Do we miss a day here and there? Sure, maybe. If you had surgery or something, maybe I'll give you a pass that day. No. But is it regular? Are you in the Scripture regularly? Why? Because he says, outside of that, you will not learn to fear the Lord. And if you don't fear the Lord, you will not keep his commandments. And if you don't fear, his, you know, fear him and keep his commandments, then you're walking down the path of destruction. Right? That's what the Proverbs is telling us. So I think it's so profound. Solomon is taking, essentially, that command, and he's, he's, he's simply rephrasing it. He's elaborating upon it, but it's the same core idea that he's trying to get across to Rehoboam here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. And I, I just encourage you to, to take this uh, and, and, and run with it. As I say, you know, the Bible is the autobiography of God. If I or you are to get to know God, to learn to fear him, then we must hear him speak. We must let him speak into our lives. Thus, I must read his word consistently. The entire Bible serves this ultimate purpose of declaring God to us. Ultimately, that's what the Proverbs and Deuteronomy are saying. We fear God. We learn to fear God by reading the scriptures daily. But what's fascinating is all the parts of the scripture help us achieve this ultimate end. I like to say this, and, and I'll just summarize, and then we'll be done for today. But all of the scriptures helps us in this process of learning to fear God. In other words, I encourage you to read the Bible systematically, to read through it, and not just cherry-pick passages, because if you do that, you will gravitate to only passages you enjoy or the only ones you like, right? But we must rather recognize that I need to read all of the scripture. Why? Well, because the narratives display God. It shows us what God is like throughout human history as we read the narratives, whether Old or New Testament narratives is really profound. The narratives display God. The poets describe God. Read the poetry in the scripture. Read Psalms, Proverbs, Job. Many places in the prophetic books are also poetic in form, but the idea is it describes God. What is God like? Clothed with light. He clothes himself with light as with a garment, Psalm 104 says. Wow, what a picture. Think about that for a while. The narratives display God. The poets describe God. The law distinguishes God. I'm telling you, for me, and I shared this with you before, but for me, it was huge for me when I, when I started to understand the book of Deuteronomy. It revolutionized my understanding of the Bible because it was like, you know, that neglected corner of the Bible that nobody reads. You know what I'm saying? And yet there was so much 
about the character of God, the nature of God, even how he was going to work throughout the rest of Hebrew history that is contained in the book of Deuteronomy. And when I understood that and I started to grasp it, it was like, oh my word, the law distinguishes God. It sets him apart. He is totally above and beyond us. That's what the word holy means. He is other than. He is transcendent. He is totally distinct from us. And we learn that from all the scripture, but man, does the law shed a light on the holiness of God and how he is apart and different and distinct from us. We learn so much about his character as we read the law. Prophets, they declare God, thus says the Lord, right? That phrase 3,800 times in your Bible, thus says the Lord. Most of those are contained in the prophetic books. Hear the word of God, his utterances, as he denounces sin, exposes sin, uh, foretells of coming judgment, whatever. The Gospels demonstrate God. What does God look like if you were to clothe him in flesh and he walks around planet Earth? What would God look like? Jesus. That's the Gospel narratives. It demonstrates God in human flesh. The epistles, your New Testament epistles, define God. They're very tight argumentation, logic, if, it, you know, if that appeals to you, it, it, it drives you to think critically about who God is and what he's like. God is light, 1 John 1, 5. Right? God is love, 1 John 4. All these different definitional you know, things that the, the epistles give us, uh, kind of a minute, you know, whittling it down to a sharp point as it discusses the nature of God and the atonement and the redemption and all of these things. And so the point is, every part of my Bible, cover to cover, ultimately serves that ultimate end of teaching me God, which is why we, we must do it systematically. I encourage you, whether you do the whole read the Bible in a year plan or you do it some other way, that's fine. But try not to be too far gone from any one portion of the Bible. Because there's so many times, again, the, the whole Bible is designed to reveal God to us. So... Keep your fingers in all different parts of the Bible constantly so that we are saturating ourselves with who God is and we are learning to fear him. Can you imagine? I'm out of time. All right? We need to be done. So let's close in prayer and then we'll get ready for the next service. Father, thank you for these thoughts as we ponder Proverbs chapter 2, as we think about your goodness and your grace we think about how you are the source of all wisdom, and yet, Lord, we must pursue this wisdom. Lord, you're so ready, willing, eager to give it if we would just put ourselves in the posture of a humble learner, a listener. Lord, might that be true of us. May you open the eyes of our hearts here this morning. Help us see the need for coming to you consistently, daily, looking for your grace, your word to speak into our lives, to give us this sort of wisdom so that we can live for your honor and for your glory. So Lord, we, we just continue to commit to you our study in the book of Proverbs and might you equip us to live wisely each day this week. Bring us back together again as we continue this study, all for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.